super, super excited. I want to thank uh, Gareth here so much for joining. I'm really, really excited to have you on the show, um, taking the time to talk about exercise selection and improving your weaknesses. So this is something that I've been really interested in, uh, especially seeing some of your work on Instagram. It's been really, really interesting seeing some of the really creative things you've come up with. I've noticed that it's been really, really beneficial just for myself, for my athletes and different things like that. Some of the perspectives that I've seen you take. So can you just start out by sharing a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit about your background and, and kind of what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, Daniel, nice to finally chat after a while. Um, you know, I've been following you as well. So really great just for us to kind of connect and, and, and chat more over some, some ideas and things really. Um, so I'll give you a really brief background about myself. So probably been training clients in person 15 years uh, since 2005, I think I first started. And I've had a really varied, uh, really varied history of, of who I've trained within that period of time as well and the environments that I've trained people in as well. So my initial training was as a, as a personal trainer. And at the same time, I suppose I was I was learning how to become a strength and conditioning coach and work within that side of things. Really, um, I originally wanted to work within strength and conditioning within team sports, especially. My background's mostly in rugby, so um, I'm, I was quite high level at rugby, but never really wanted to actually be a player. I always wanted to be a coach, really. And the strength and conditioning room was was where I saw myself fitting in, um, and then. After going through my formal education to become a strength and conditioning coach, I actually realized that I enjoyed training your, your regular, you know, your, your regular person off the street a little bit more than I did the, the athletes. Um, you know, as I said, I originally saw myself as training quite high level athletes, but actually I preferred, you know, little old Jill from down the road or, you know, Mike that wanted to look great on the beach for his holiday rather than training, uh, I don't know, an, an 18 stone rugby player or something like that, that that's used to that gym environment. So my history, as I said, is, is very varied in, in who I've trained. I'd say right now about 50% of the people that I train are athletes. I tend to train people one-to-one -one nowadays. Um, and then the rest of them are, you know, people that just want to look better naked, really. I've got a few physique clients, a few competitors. Um, so really my history is massively varied and, and that's where I suppose you, you see a lot of exercise selection coming from and that creativity is that I'm solving some, some problems for, for a wide variety of, of clients in different scenarios and in different training environments and that's through evolving throughout the years of, of training a variety of people within those different environments really. That's kind of an interesting pass. You said a couple of things that were, were pretty cool that stood out to me. And one of the things you mentioned was kind of the, the eclectic background that you have in terms of who you're actually training, who you're coaching. Um, definitely in the sport of powerlifting and, and strength, so sort of my realm, I find that there's kind of been a little bit of a push towards this kind of over-application of specificity, you know, where athletes especially powerlifters will be like squat bench and deadlift and anything that's a variation from that you know is is getting away from the goal and it's like well i don't know about that but uh you know and so i think in a lot of ways people really limit themselves and limit their their potential and also like the quality of their training even like because i mean for instance like you look at strong men right and and everything that powerlifters joke about they're like oh you know you don't want to do too much cardio and like specificity and i'm like okay well where's the specificity in strong man like <laughs> 
pulling a truck and, and squatting and stones and all these things, it's like, okay, you can kind of boil it down to, you know, like deadlifting and overhead press. And if you're, if you're really good at those, you're going to be good at probably most things. Right. But at the end of the day, like those guys are just ridiculously strong at everything. And I think it's because they include a lot of really interesting variations in their exercises. And so in a lot of ways, I think people really limit themselves if they start kind of thinking of not, not saying that like a powerlifting coach, you know, is a, is a bad title or anything like that, but, uh, you know, cause I'm a powerlifting coach, but at the same time, I think that if you kind of, you know, pigeonhole yourself and you say, I'm a powerlifting coach, I do Bulgarian split squats and squats and front squats. And then it's like, okay, well, why don't you do any of these other things? I think you're kind of limiting yourself in terms of uh, scope of practice and, and like, you know, the potential benefits you can get for a lot of your athletes. So uh, I found the kind of interesting, like how you introduce yourself in that way. And so how, how would you say you described your training philosophy? I just want to kind of stick on that point that you've actually made just a second ago, because I think it's a really, really good one. And, you know, it, it really comes back down to you don't actually have to train in a certain way unless it's essential for your sport. And I think that's what a lot of people forget about, really, is that almost that definition of what strength is. So obviously in powerlifting, the definition of strength is you've got a big squat bench deadlift. That's that's your sport. You know, the definition of, of, of having high level of strength in Olympic weightlifting is you've got a good snatch, clean and jerk, you know. And I think that's transferred over into gym environments where suddenly you ask someone if they're strong and automatically they pull up their bench squat and deadlift numbers. Whereas you and I both know strong could mean a variety of different things. It can mean being strong on a certain exercise on a pull up or something like that. It could be to a rock climber being strong could be being able to hold yourself in that position for a long period of time. You know, people talk about being functionally strong and functional really is, it, is a, a word I don't like to use. But to me, functional is, is anything that kind of transfers over to a, a real world activity of some type. To me, right. talking about functional and talking about things like a plank, a plank is not functional unless you want to be good at performing a plank. You know, um, you know, I don't really want to go off on that tangent. But as I said, I think we as a, as a, <laughs> I think we as a, as, as strength coaches, as, as trainers, as a, um, as an industry, I think we need to kind of open our, open our eyes a little bit as far as that definition of, of, of strength goes. And it doesn't always necessarily go down to that bench squat and deadlift. And that's where, you know, assistance exercises can, can come into that. And it's having a, a, a large variety of things that you are strong at not necessarily your your big key indicator lifts if those are your bench squat and deadlift and whatever um but no i'll i'll, I'll go back to your question about my my philosophy really um and my philosophy is i i don't really have one i don't subscribe to one approach to training if if anything my my philosophy is i, I train whoever's in front of me so you know, you, you can compare that to someone that might well be a um, probably a quite a closed minded powerlifting coach. And no matter who they've got in front of them, whether you've got 80 year old Jill or 20 year old Jack that just wants big guns, you're going to bench squat and deadlift with them. You know, that 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 might be their their training philosophy. No matter what, you have to always revert to those big lifts because that's going to pack the most amount of mass onto you, et cetera, et cetera. So you cut out there for a minute. Um, I just want to make sure that uh, I, I heard exactly what you said. 
Um, so you were talking about making sure that you have, you know, a variety of different tools in your toolbox and kind of selecting the, the yep. appropriate one based on the situation, not necessarily based on, you know, what's thought to be the, the right. Your own beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. So w one thing that I found uh, really interesting was during the whole COVID, um, during the whole COVID epidemic, like I, I like lifting heavy weight, you know, like I'm not a big fan of push-ups or, you know, a lot of these yeah. kind of body weight calisthenic exercises. Mm. But for about two months there, I didn't have access to a gym. And so I was forced to do, you know, one arm push-ups, pistol squats, pull-ups, all these different things, deficit push-ups. And I was actually astonished at how fucking hard those things are, you know, like, I mean, I, I could crank out a bunch, but it was, it was really, what was really shocking to me was I think I really underestimated how valuable those exercises are um, especially just with some very simple tweaks, you know, like doing some deficit push-ups with a pause or doing like one and a quarter deficit push-ups, utilizing a band, things like that. Like I was getting crazy workouts in. They weren't super enjoyable all the time, but I, I, I lost like 30 pounds during that whole process and I kept like almost all my muscle and I was really, really wow. surprised about that. Um, and yeah, so that was something that was really interesting to me, and it really opened my eyes, and, and it kind of made me reflect back on my own training, and I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, I think, I think the easiest things to do in, in powerlifting or strength training in general are, it's like, okay, how do we present an overload stimulus, right? And most of the time, what people go to are A, load progressions, or B, volume progressions, right? And it's like, well, how about tempo? How about, you know, um, you know utilizing various range of motions for the same exercise? How about, you know, exercise selection? How about uh, cluster sets? How about, you know, like decreasing rest periods and all these things that I think we know about conceptually. And I think a lot of people give a lot of lip service to, but then at the same time, when, when the rubber really hits the road, you know, you'll, you'll see a guy talking about all this stuff, but then you look at this program and you're like, well, you're not really doing any of that in your programs, you know? And it was really interesting for me because I was just so shocked at how, uh, how effective certain body weight exercises were. And I mean, during that time, like, yeah, my strength went down, but at the same time, like I really improved my ankle mobility. I really improved my shoulder health and my shoulder stability and like all these different things. And I was like, Oh wow. Like this is, this is really high value work that I'm doing right now, even though it's not necessarily going to help me get stronger. It's really yeah. improving my mobility, which is going to help enhance my, my squat position, my bench position, all these different things, even helping with like preventing injury and pain. And so I was pretty shocked at, uh, at how impactful that was. And it was a really great learning experience for me. So um, I guess to kind of get, get to an actual question, like can you share some of the methods or some of the things that you really like doing to present an overload, to make things a little bit more challenging for your clients so that we actually have some sort of directed adaptation um, outside of just augmenting load and volume? Yeah, I, I think going back to the, you know, because it's obviously very current, I think going back to, to COVID and, and how people have had to change their training, I think we've now got nations or a world full of, you know, tiny little MacGyvers that are fucking <laughs> up bands yeah. everywhere and, and, you know, trying to find really creative solutions to, to, to get the exact same, same stimulus that they were beforehand. And I think exactly as you said, many people are finding that, it can be as effective, sometimes in certain scenarios, even more effective using those things versus what they were previously doing in the gym. And one of the things I think a lot of people have got out of this is that they finally understood how to 
truly create tension from an exercise. So, you know, when they first started out, you know, you're, you, you, I don't know, you're working out when you're 18 years old, you went to the gym and you started deadlifting right away. You didn't learn some of the fundamentals to that. You didn't learn how to create an optimal lats tension or whatever in, 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 in that position. So doing things like that now where people are using slightly less weights, while they're a little bit more focused on doing things, while they're even using methods like pre-fatiguing certain muscles um, before using bigger, you know, quote unquote, bigger exercises to integrate them into. They're learning how to kind of create some tension within those exercises and actually get a better stimulus from the exercise. So I think if there's one take home people can get, I do actually see this, this COVID period as a bit of an opportunity in that you've got many people almost going back to foundations and building up those foundations. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm a big believer that contrary to, to popular opinion, you master single leg lifts before you go on to bilateral lifts. I think you should be able to split squat, etc before you can you know before you can heavy deadlift heavy squat and so on i just think it builds up solid foundations and there's you know there's many other reasons for that which we can talk about if you like but that's exactly what some people are doing right now they're going back to building up their single leg strength they're going back to doing bulgarian split squats doing single leg i don't know kettlebell deadlifts with uh, with a tiny little kettlebell or whatever and they're developing that, that balance, that stability, that, that range of motion and really challenging themselves on one leg. So when they do return to the gym, which in the UK, we're, we're probably about a month out at the moment. But when people do return to the gym and they return to those quote unquote big lifts, they should be able to use what they've learned during this period of time and those foundations and continue to build on those foundations. So whilst using that that tension that they've learned to be able to create in this period so theoretically you're almost going back to the gym as almost like a, a, a newbie in a way so using those kind of using what you've already learned in this covid environment you can get almost newbie level gains when you go back to the gym if you approach things in the right way and with those previous big lifts that you that you're using so you're getting more out of them yeah, totally. And that was actually something that I really noticed as well. Um, it just the movements did change dramatically. So like my squat stance went from being, you know, quite a bit wider than my shoulders to like almost underneath my hips. Um, just like that, because I improved my ankle mobility so much. And then there were certain like even kinesthetic uh, pieces, I guess that, you know, you develop because you're used to doing movements so many times over and over and over again. And you just kind of turn on autopilot a little bit, even though you're really focusing, but when you're forced to do a different exercise, all of a sudden you have all these different, you know, sensory inputs coming and you're like, okay, I got to do this. I got to keep my arms like that, keep my core brace and you know, whatever. And it kind of gives you a little slightly different piece in terms of that proprioceptive awareness. And so then you can kind of take that back and you're like, oh wow, like that was a really cool integration tool to get my core, you know, bracing ability like really primed for for squats or you know whatever it might be and so that was kind of really interesting thing that i noticed still impacts my my lifting right now and so i thought that was kind of cool so i can totally uh see where you're coming from with the whole building up tension thing and then as you come back 
and you're, you're kind of approaching your lifts again, you're like, Oh wow. Like this feels different. You know, I'm bracing differently. Yeah. My positioning is differently how I'm descending and, and where, you know, which structures I'm loading and the sequencing of everything. It feels, it does feel dramatically different. So I can definitely attest to what you're saying. So that's a really interesting point. Um, and in the short, in the short term, you might return to the gym and you might return to those lifts and, and it will feel a little bit different and you won't be lifting the same as you were beforehand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you and I both know, strength is very joint angle specific. It's very exercise specific. Yeah. So you're going to initially find that you won't be lifting as much. But after a, a month or so, you're, in theory, your lifts could surpass what they were beforehand because you're now training a little bit smarter. Yeah. No, that's a great point, too. Yeah. So um, just about everything kind of being joint specific and relative to like the, the penation angle, all those different things. So that was something that I experienced as well when I started coming in a little narrower for my squat. All of a sudden I was like, oh my God, like 300 pounds felt like it was going to crush me on a squat. And I'm like, man, I've, <laughs> I've benched this for like 15 reps. Like what the hell is going yeah. on? And, uh, you know, exactly like you said, after a couple of weeks, I was like, you know, not a big deal. Um, and, you know, more or less back to normal. So so you're, you're kind of known as being this guy who's really, really creative with some of the exercises that you, you come up with. Um, how did that come about? Was that something that kind of just came up naturally or is that something that kind of like, I guess, was born out of necessity? It's kind of born out of necessity, really. You, I've spent, I'd say, about the last 14, 15 years training a good variety of clientele in, in, in all different environments. When I first started coaching people, 15 years ago, I was coaching people out of their homes. I basically trained people um, almost on a, on a lake. Um, so imagine a lot of homes around a lake. There was some, there was some grass area which kind of overlooked the lake. lake. It was pretty nice in summer. And I also didn't have a lot of cash to my name. You know, I, I, I don't come from a privileged background. I was paying lots of student fees and things like that. Um, so I had kind of a, an old clapped out car and I pretty much had a, a bunch of resistance bands and some really, really cheap, I think I had some cones or something like that. So 15 odd years ago, I was traveling to people's homes and hooking up bands to things and, and, and trying to create exercises that mimicked what I like to do in the gym that kind of mimicked, um, mimicked deadlifting and mimicked squats and things like that and finding creative ways to load people without actually having access to, to gym-based equipment. So it was kind of born out of necessity then. And then I've also trained a lot, of, um, a lot of football teams, a lot of soccer teams, where in the off-season, they've got a really well-kitted-out weights room. But then during this season, they, they, they haven't actually had access to that weights room. So I, I've ended up doing almost bolt-ons to their warm-ups. So I'll do all their mobility and all their prep work. And then I've maybe got 20 minutes or something something to do their strength work and I've got access to resistance bands a couple of push sleds um, and just very very kind of minimal equipment so I'm trying to create a stimulus out of that and out of that minimum equipment in a group of maybe 30 players at the same time so I've got to be creative in, in that environment if I wasn't creative then I'm not going to get much from them it's almost pointless me being there so kind of out of necessity it's, it's forced me to be creative to, to get the adaptations that I've wanted. And in, for example, those, those groups of, of soccer players, as, as, as one example of the team that I'm talking about, they can do for three, four months that type of work we're talking about, purely pitch-based with resistance bands and a push sled. 
and I can return them back to the weights room and just from experience, their lifts aren't far off from where we left off. So we've developed those basic, those strength foundations, et cetera. They're, they're lifting heavy. They're doing explosive work in the gym in the off season. And they were actually able to maintain that with very, very, very little equipment just applied in a very smart way during the season. So as I said, it's kind of born out of necessity, really. And then I think in this, this COVID, COVID environment, it's, it's kind of shown a little bit more because I've kind of had to go back to my roots a little bit. Although I'm privileged in that I do have, you know, I've got a one-car garage that I've, I've thrown a load of kits in and I've got maybe more than, more than some people. You know, I've got a landmine in there, I've got a barbell and things like that. I've still kind of had to revert back to that resistance band training and, and being creative and kind of hooking up a lot of things to create that, that same stimulus, really. So, as I said, it's born out of necessity and just training a, a wide amount of people. Um, and those people can be um, people that are just trying to avoid pain in a certain exercise. So you have to modify an exercise in a certain way, or it could just be they've got limited equipment or limited space or whatever it's me trying to almost find a solution to a problem really and then unfortunately what obviously what you know about instagram is that it's a very very slight snippet of what actually goes on so what you find on instagram with me is that you're seeing maybe uh, one exercise that i've probably used once or twice with someone um, to solve a problem and that's it, really. Right. You're not seeing the, the rest of the workout, which might have been a, a heavy deadlift variation, you know, modified according to that person. It might have been a squat. It might have been a pull-up, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I've used those, those key exercises and modifications of those key exercises. But then on Instagram, just because of the way it works, I put on something that's a little bit different because, A, that helps my profile, I'll be honest. Um, and B, it's, it might solve someone else's problem. And that's really what I'm looking for there is to, to you know, if, if that post solves one person's problem because they've seen an exercise that helps them avoid pain or create a, a great stimulus out of some limited equipment, then, then that kind of makes me happy, really. That's a good point about Instagram, right? So, like, for instance, there's, there's a handful of times where I've had people reach out to me and they're like, I don't know, asking me about why I'm doing an exercise in a certain way or why I'm doing something. So for instance, like, um, there was one time where like I was doing some squats and then I had like this really thin rubber mat underneath my heels. Uh, and, and someone was like, Hey, why are you doing that? Like, you know, are you trying to load your quads? And they had like, they had all these answers in their head. And I was like, no, I just forgot my squat shoes. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, and sometimes and I, it's so simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Or, or like you'll be doing a certain variation. They're like, Hey, why are you doing it this way? That's a really unique way. And I'm like, well, if I do it this way, it hurts my elbow. You know, the, that's it. Like, and I think sometimes when people aren't privy to some of that information, they assume that there's like a secret, you know, or this magic behind it. And they're like, Oh my God, why is he doing that? I wonder. And they start kind of, you know, getting the gears going. And all of a sudden it's like, well, no, they only do that because, you know, this hurts them and that doesn't, or, you know what I mean? Or they don't have access to this or something like that. And so it ends up being really simplistic. And so you never really know when you're seeing on Instagram, like what the backstory is. It um, always like, goes back to training what's in yeah. front of you, doesn't it? 
totally. You know, you, yeah. you, whatever exercise you're prescribing, whether it's for you or for, for a client, you, the number one thing you must be able to do is to be able to justify that exercise. You know, you're talking about a hills elevated squat. Now, a hills elevated squat in, in your scenario just a second ago is justified because it's to, to accommodate for your, for your regular footwear, basically, because that's how you prefer to squat and it, it mimics that movement pattern. For someone else, it might be that I'm actually trying to avoid back pain, you know, because I'm increasing, yeah. I'm, I've got a more vertical torso angle. For another person, it might be I'm trying to get some more quadriceps dominance out of it. You know, there's yeah. no there's no one answer, and it always goes back to training that person in front of you. And you must be able to justify every single exercise that that you're giving that person. And uh, and, and that kind of brings me to the next question. So I'm a huge fan of accessory training. Um, I think that it's largely underlooked in in the powerlifting and strength community in general. I think that more powerlifters would benefit if they took a little bit more of like a bodybuilding approach. Um, in their accessory work when, when they're training and took that a little bit more seriously, but kind of conversely, what you see sometimes is you see novelty for the sake of novelty. So like, you know, the obvious downsides to this being a decrease in specificity and then kind of a reduction in sort of directed adaptation. So how do you go about, you know, creating some exercises and at what, at what point does, you know, it kind of come to this point of like diminishing returns? Yeah, first off, I don't think there's any such thing as creating exercises. There are a few few names in the industry out there that... That's actually something I was going to ask you right about next. (laughs) (laughs) They they claim themselves to be exercise creators, you know, and and people have claimed me to be an exercise creator. I don't think there is such a thing. Uh, Sometimes I'm just the first person to share that exercise publicly um you know l- luckily i'm on platforms like you know right for testosterone nation etc who have a big audience who might see that and therefore put my name to the exercise because that's where they've seen it first but chances are that even though i might have come up with that exercise or played about with that exercise chances are someone else somewhere has done that before they just haven't had as big a platform to be able to share that on or they've just done it on themselves or a client or something like that. So everything that you see out there right now has been done before by someone else anyway. Going back to um, really exercise variation, I think uh, one thing that we do to um, not help us when especially we first start training is to think we all need to be training in a certain way. So we pick up those bodybuilding magazines, we read articles or whatever, or we subscribe to a certain approach of training and that's how we train. Or we think we all need to bench squat and deadlift off the floor with a, you know, or, you know, with a barbell or whatever. Now, I think when people are first starting out, I think they need massive variation so by exposing yourself to massive variation on obviously with with justified lifts and, and you know and effective exercises but with massive variation you can then decide actually what exercises feel good and work best for you what put you in the best position the best angles and so on and what creates the the you know the, the best stimulus for you to be able to adapt and then the more advanced you get the narrower that becomes so I, for example, within my own training, I probably cycle between about three different deadlift variations for the entire year. 
and that's it. I'd probably go through about four different squat variations and I'll cycle through that the entire year. Just, you know, back and forth, I'll just layer exercises. Because I've found what works well for me, I've found what gives me the biggest benefit, what avoids, you know, I've got a bit of a cranky knee from an old rugby injury, what avoids things like that. You know, I've got a cranky shoulder from trying to bench press too much when I was younger. You know, I, I, I cycle through certain bench press variations. So as I said, large variation, especially as you're first starting out, and then narrow that down to find the, the, the path that, that kind of suits you best, really. And even if that path ends up becoming a, a barbell deadlift off the floor, and bear in mind, we're not talking about a powerlifter specifically here. We're talking right. about someone that just might want to improve their health, fitness, body composition. There's no one out there that says you have to deadlift from the floor because that's not your sport. For that person, a simple modification like deadlifting one inch off the floor might be, you know, might be the, the long-term solution that might avoid their cranky back and get the exact same stimulus. For someone else, it might be a trap bar deadlift or something like that. Um, for other people, they might not be able to, to deadlift at all. It might be another hip hinge variation. But you, you have to have a variety and, and try to bunch move to see what feels right and what gives you the, the the biggest bang for your buck really what's worth your time unless it's your sports you do not have to train in, in one way and even if it's your sport as you know you don't have to train in that way you have to be good at that lift but your training can encompass a variety of different things that all complement that lift to kind of add to your point um i had one athlete who Really, really big dude, super strong guy. And every time we got him to deadlift from the floor, he uh, he would just be completely done. Like he'd be so exhausted, so fatigued. And I was like, okay, well maybe we'll we'll switch his training frequency so he'll be deadlifting once every two weeks. So we did that. Still didn't really seem to help that much. And then what we did was we actually put him up on some blocks. So he he only ever pulled off a four inch block. That was it. And he was able to consistently lift once a week for his deadlifts. Um, and get just like freakishly strong and he never had any issues off the floor in an actual meet. And that's one of those things where you're like, okay, you know, like it, it, it doesn't necessarily, like it seems pretty counterintuitive, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know what, you're just kind of following the signs and, and uh, figuring that out. And like you said in the beginning, like, I mean, the diameter of a weight plate is, is completely arbitrary, right? So for some person who's really, really small, it's like at their knees. For someone who's really tall, it's like two inches away from their ankles, you know? So it, it does end up being pretty arbitrary in the end. Um, so you also mentioned something earlier about, you know, you don't believe in, in creating exercises. And uh, that was something for me anyways that I found uh, pretty interesting and that I found pretty helpful in my own training a lot of the times the perception of exercises is like, that's a deadlift, that's a squat, uh, that's a bench press. And one thing that I've kind of sort of shifted as, as far as like my own uh, personal opinion goes is, as I've kind of been a coach for a little longer is instead of looking at things kind of based on like what exercises it, it's like, okay, well, what kind of function am I trying to, to produce here? Um, so instead of looking at a deadlift and being like, okay, that's a, that's a deadlift. It's like, okay, well, it's more of like a knee, knee and hip hinge, you know, and, and there's going to be one that's a little bit more dominant than the other. And then based off of that, you can kind of start to, you know, create your own sort of movements based around the objective that you're trying to come out. So again, 
um, my upper back and my erectors, I was having a hard time sometimes in the deadlift and that would kind of cave in. So I just was like, okay, well, my erectors are anti-flexion essentially. And so if I do something and I go into flexion and extension with a barbell on my back, everyone's like, oh, it's terrible for you and whatever. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I would do that. And I round my upper back like crazy. And then I do it with really lightweight and I would do like a five minute set of just going up and down, up and down, up and down, five minutes. Yeah. And people would be like, oh, what's that exercise call? And I'm like, the sitting down, the <laughs> exercise, I don't know. Um, yeah. And it was, it was just, you know, like at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I need it to serve this purpose, right? And uh, kind of like what you were saying earlier, it seems like you have a lot of that sort of mentality when you're, when you're approaching these things, um, which is interesting and kind of plays into to my next point, actually, or my next question. So from a strength perspective, let's say you're looking at an athlete and, you know, a strength-based athlete. So how do you go about identifying weaknesses? And when you do sort of try to tackle those issues, do you try and attack it from like a primary exercise movement or do you focus a little bit more on like accessories and auxiliaries and that's kind of where you're going to tackle the the main issues or how do you approach it in general yeah really good question actually um so all boils back down to you, you you've got to train what's in front of you you know and you, you've got to know your target really as well so um you know the programming principles are, are the same for everyone principles are principles and they're grounded in science and you, you, you kind of know, know how the body works and how the body adapts. But when it comes to reality and in the real world, it's how that applies to that person as well. Now, we can pull out every single research paper in the world that says that a, I don't know, a, a barbell back squat will improve your uh, sprinting performance or something. But, and, and that it's the best exercise in the world for that. But what if a barbell back squat isn't suited to that person? Well, then you've got to find the, the closest thing you possibly can to create the same stimulus in a way. In the day, you've, you've got to know your target. So if I want to create a stimulus that makes that person run faster there and, uh, and a back squat, for example, uh, I can't do because I'm, not, I'm limited on equipment because that person um has a cranky knee every time they even look at a barbell then i've got to come up with some kind of workaround for that exercise now i might try some um i don't know i might try some box squats or i might try some safety squat you know some squats with a safety squat bar but if those don't work then i've got to be a little bit more creative and then what if they can't hold a kettlebell and do a goblet squat then you know, again, I've got to try, kind of find a, a solution to that as well. So it's always about training the target, really. So if my target's wanting to improve their, their speed, and I know that a squat-type pattern is going to be the best for that, whether it is or isn't, that's another conversation. But I'm trying to hit that movement pattern in the most effective way I can um, with, you know, with whatever solution I can come up with, really. Whether I can do that with a bar or a kettlebell or a resistance band or whatever and sometimes it just happens to look a little bit more creative now if we want to go a little bit more into it so let's say we are talking about sprint performance because you, you know you're talking about an athlete sprinting speed is important and i look at something like a deadlift well actually a deadlift sorry a deadlift a squat a squat has more of a, a, a vertical kind of load vector to it i'm applying load directly vertically 
Whereas I'm kind of forgetting about that horizontal load vector that's really important during sprinting. So producing power horizontally. Now, I might perceive a squat as being a brilliant exercise in general to improve their speed, but I'm neglecting in a way my, my ability to extend my hips in that horizontal direction. So I might, uh, as a secondary exercise to that squat, give them something like a hip thrust or a glute bridge because I'm thinking about developing that horizontal force production. Now that glute bridge or hip thrust also assists with my squat at the same time, doesn't it? It helps me fire out the bottom position where my ass is going to be most important. So everything kind of goes in hand in hand really. And then if I want to add to that person, um, the fact that, well, you're not just running in a straight line. So therefore we can't do everything in the sagittal plane. We can't do everything going forward. Well, you need to be doing some stuff going sideways as well, don't you? You know, so we might be doing some assistance exercises where we're working on some, some lateral, some frontal plane movements. We're doing some lateral lunges and, and, and things like that at the same time. So it all kind of goes hand in hand, really. And then you've got to factor that in as well that you could argue that a bilateral squat, a squat on two legs, actually, in a lot of sports, you're probably not going to be working on two legs. You're going to be working one leg at a time. So therefore, is a Bulgarian split squat or, a, or something like that going to be uh, more transferable to their, their actual performance? And again, you, you could do an entire podcast talking about that. Mm-hmm. But let's say I perceive my main, my key indicator lift as being my back squat theoretically again whether it is or isn't it, that's another conversation but let's say that is then i'm trying to fit the rest of the stuff in around that i'm thinking about i want some something to work that horizontal load vector okay a glute bridge or a hip thrust that that's great in there i want to work some single leg strength all right i might assist with a bulgarian split squat or something i want to work in 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 the frontal plane more all right i've got to add some lateral lunges in there or something and that's just part of that equation that, you know, that, that, that forms that overall, overall plan. And then you've got to think about all the nooks and crannies and, and things and the weaknesses that they have. And, and they're things that I think as a coach, you, you tend to see anyway. For example, let's go back to that back squat. You might see someone's, um, I know someone's hips rise first before their knees come up at the same time their timing might be completely out therefore you could probably say they're shifting a lot of that load onto their back so therefore or they're using their hip extensors to get themselves up rather than pushing through their quads maybe their quads are a little bit weak you can come to various conclusions from that happening or just their movement pattern shocking and you need to work on it it could just be that but you'll then come up with your assistance lifts that then work on that movement pattern itself as well. And again, there's stuff that you might sprinkle in at the back end of your session. So everything that you put in together, you almost have a, okay, there's my priority. That's what I'm going to be spending the most time on. Everything else is kind of working around that really. So that's kind of my philosophy on, on accessory lifts really. I'll always have a, a key indicator lift something I'm looking at week in, week out, look, is that going up? Am I getting an extra one, two percent on that bar each week? And that's a good indicator for how well they may be adapting to the program, how well they're recovering, and so on. And then everything else kind of floats around that and it is programmed in accordingly, really. So I like the hierarchy that you kind of said where it's like, okay, we kind of do essentially a needs analysis and then say, okay, what's going to be the most effective way to 
you know, improve the transfer of training into performance. And, and like you said, you made a really good point. We won't necessarily go into it about yeah. that may or may not be the squad. It might be something else. Um, you know, a lot of the time specificity and transference, you know, sometimes are, are, are different. And so, uh, yeah, so I guess I kind of, one of the interesting things that I've seen nowadays anyways, with, with the rise of social media and, and, kind of the popularity now of powerlifting and weightlifting CrossFit, things like that, is a lot of the times people start out in the gym. They don't kind of have that initial phase where they're doing bodybuilding and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're experimenting with a whole variety of exercises. I think that was a lot more common back in the day, whereas now a lot of the times what you're seeing is people will pick up weight for the first time and they'll be a powerlifter, you know? And so one of the things that I've noticed about that is that you have this significant reduction in exercise variation um, and experimenting with, you know, a whole variety of different movements. And so as you were saying, when you miss that, a lot of the times that initial kind of adaptation where your body is just growing and developing, like you might be super, super strong in one plane of motion, but then all of a sudden you go, you know, you shift out of position. It's like, Oh shoot, I'm completely messed up because my adductors are weak or my hips or my whatever, you know, or my, you know, anything could, could go wrong. And because you haven't had taken that time to kind of really build a good three-dimensional foundation, you end up missing a lot of potential progress. And so that's something that I've noticed personally in, in a lot of the newer lifters as well, is they just kind of start out doing that. And uh, one of the things that I've really found to be interesting is that when you start incorporating all of these like less specific exercises that aren't supposed to have all this transfer, all of a sudden their, their gains just start going way through the roof. It's like, well, how is it that deadlifts aren't helping you anymore, but back extensions are? And it's like, well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, you know, but I think that's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to see where you see a reduction in specificity creating a higher transference of strength to the platform and into the overall lifts. Is that something you've observed at all? I, I'm not sure how many yeah, powerlifters you work uh, with, but. Not too many powerlifters. Um, in a lot of my formal education, um, one of my mentors was a very, very high level uh, powerlifter. So a lot of my, my initial teaching on, on, the, on the big lifts and things like that were, were kind of through him. And, um, and and kind of around that powerlifting circle, um, and obviously it's things you you know you pick up and, and get mentorships from various people throughout the years and, and right. so on. But powerlifters directly aren't something that I've that I've worked a heck of a lot with. Um, my use of the you know quote unquote big three lifts are largely as a as a means to create a strength stimulus or a power stimulus. Or a, or a hypertrophy stimulus for you know either other someone that wants to look better, a physique athlete or, or, or an athlete on, on the sports field, so maximal transference to their, their speed or, or movement or whatever. Um, but it it sounds cliche, but you're only as strong as your weakest link. It really all boils back down to that. If we want to take it to something as simple as a uh, a chin up that everyone knows what a chin up is but if you're doing a chin up and the weakest thing about your chin up is your grip strength you physically can't grip that bar for long enough that's the first thing that gives out well it just makes sense to improve your grip strength because as soon as you improve your grip strength well then your chin up performance is immediately going to go through the roof so i might be complementing my chin up routine doing i don't know doing a few sets of chin ups employing some I don't know some cluster reps with it or whatever to try and improve my chins. 
But then as my assistance lifts, I might be doing some additional grip work and as well grip work that's specific to that position that I'm gripping that bar in as well. So it's, it might not just be gripping a couple of plates in a pinch grip type position. It will be me physically clenching something and improving my kind of my crushing grip strength. So it has maximum transference to my pull-ups. So it makes complete sense that I would want to be doing some assistance lifts because I, if I keep hammering away at those chin-ups, well, I suppose eventually your grip strength might improve and catch up, but you're not getting the most out of those chin-ups if your grip strength is weak. You're definitely not going to be building a bigger back and you're definitely not going to be, be improving your strength in those, those big muscle groups. If, you know, if you've got a weak link there, work the weak link. So I guess moving a little bit away from hyper or a little bit away from strength and more into hypertrophy. Um, I think there's quite a bit of research, you know, talking about different motor learning from using exercise variations and the more variation you're using, the faster motor learning occurs, especially in kind of like beginner and, and intermediate athletes. But then there's also, you know, some speculation as well, some research on, on looking at like how that impacts mind muscle connection, how that impacts um, your ability to really effectively recruit um, all of the muscle to, to, you know, perform certain exercises. And then even how, you know, you're saying joint angle affects how the load is being transferred in through the muscle. When you're working with clients who want to, you know, be very lean and, and build the most amount of muscle, how does exercise variation come into that? How do joint angles, different joint angles and things like that impact, you know, the growth of musculature? So when it comes to a physique client, as um, I'm, I'm thinking primarily about hypertrophy. So um, when I'm looking at programming with that type of person, I'm thinking more as far as assistance exercises go about the, the lengths at which those muscles are working at. So when we're talking about hypertrophy, we're talking about, you know, three primary mechanisms, um, things that, for example, Brad Schoenfeld has spoken a lot about. Um, there's a lot at the moment, um, you know, mechanical tension, um, sorry mechanical tension um uh what is it mechanical tension uh metabolic stress um and tissue breakdown sorry i had a brain fart there but <laughs> <laughs> mechanical mecha mechanical tension is the is the primary one really that's what we're talking about to create a lot of mechanical tension we basically just want to put force across tissues now we also want to put force across tissues at different lengths because they create different stimuli. So let's say, for example, I'm, again, we keep referring to that back squat. Let's say, for example, I'm, I'm back squatting. I'm getting most of that tension in probably that mid-range and bottom position in my, in my glutes. Um, but then, for, you know, if we're just talking about muscle, but in that top position where our glutes are much shorter, we're actually compromising on that tension. So we're getting a decent activation in my, in, in my glutes throughout a, a long length, but I'm not getting much activation in a shorter length. So as a complement to, uh, to my squat that I'm now using for glutes hypertrophy, I'm going to use something that works my glutes in a shorter range position, which just happens to be something like a glute bridge or a hip thrust which, you know, a glute bridge or hip thrust, they're terrible at working glutes through a lengthened range of motion. You know, both of those exercises can complement each other in a, in a hypertrophy-based approach. We know very well that, you know, I keep referring back to the back squat because, you know, we might as well stay on conversation. But for quads, 
a back squat's absolutely absolutely brilliant, but we get most quads activation in that top position. Um, so you could argue, for example, that actually working the top half of the squat is more important than working the bottom half of the squat. But again, that's another conversation. But we also know that for hypertrophy, a squat is not very good at promoting your, your, your rectus femoris, you know, your, your, your fourth quadricep muscle that also acts as, a, acts as a hip flexor. So we might want to use an exercise that effectively activates our rectus femoris to complement our squats to optimize quadriceps hypertrophy. So things like a leg extension machine are actually, as boring as it might sound, actually complement that very, very nicely. Because we hit that squat pattern, we're working our quads through a, a good range of motion, but then we go into our leg extension machine afterwards and we're kind of finishing off a muscle that's been under-stimulated from that, from that bigger exercise. There's no point in us going from that squat to, for example, another squat pattern like a leg press uh, because we're essentially hitting the same thing and we're neglecting the same thing at the same time. We're hitting the exact same muscle leg. There is an argument that you, that you could, could use that for some purposes, but for, for other purposes through, through, you know, through working the muscle through its entire length and working those neglected muscle groups, it's probably not going to be the, the ideal order. Um, and as well, if, if you've squatted effectively for hypertrophy, then you're probably not going to have much left in the tank to then go to that heavy leg press. So as yeah. I said, it, <laughs> you, you're just not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to go on that leg press and do some and pop out some, some Ronnie Coleman style weights on that. It's not going to happen if you've squatted in the most effective way possible for, for hypertrophy. Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting point, actually, that you mentioned about... Uh, the the squat and rec fem activation things like that that that's one thing i think as well um i guess you could talk about for quite a while um people looking at the squat and different exercises and saying oh this is a you know great builder of your glutes a great builder of your hamstrings and you know we look at hamstring activation to squat and it's pretty minimal same thing with rec fem mm. and um i guess while we're on it just I'll kind of clarify for some listeners. Uh, one of the reasons for that is when you have like what's called a biarticular muscle, which is a muscle that crosses like two different joints, it serves two different purposes. So, you know, in the purpose of the hamstrings, um, it'll, you know, flex the knee and it'll also extend the hip. So if you're squatting and you have tons of, of hamstring recruitment while well, you're extending the hip, but you're also curling, like you're also flexing the knee, right? So it ends up kind of being counterproductive. And so we don't actually want a whole lot of recruitment of the hamstrings while we're squatting the same is true with uh with rec fem as well um which is why you know like uh you were saying you'd want to be able to utilize different exercise variations to make sure that you get a really really you know good well-rounded balance of of muscle activation from different angles um of different positions because that's going to help a lot with uh with development now one question that i have for you as well is when you look at a lot of power lifters and you look at their physiques a lot of the times you'll see a lot of the hypertrophy is, is kind of regional. So especially kind of coming in the, in the upper quad region. So they'll have kind of smaller quads when it, you know, around the knees and the more distal uh, areas, but then up around like the adductors, the hips, they're just like monstrous. My legs are like that. Almost every powerlifter I know is like that outside of a few genetic freaks who just look like bodybuilders. But um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so have, have you seen that and what do you do? Um, 
I guess, to kind of counteract that with utilizing various exercises? Or, or have you seen that as far as like uh, regional hypertrophy occurring from, um, you know, either heavy loading and concentric base movements versus eccentric base movements? Yeah, I've definitely seen some, some regional hypertrophy from, from doing things like that. But again, it kind of all boils back down to the sport and being the, the best for that sport that, that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Let's say we're talking about powerlifting. Well, you want to basically optimize your body or optimize your frame to be the best at those lifts you possibly can. You want to get the best performance out of yourself on, on, on the day um, as you possibly can. And that does, unfortunately, require uh, you as, as, should we say, a human um to 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 not necessarily be be as optimal as as, as you can be if um if i put a uh, a power lifter uh in front of or if, if i throw you in a swimming pool you're not going to be the best swimmer in the world if i throw you on a running machine you're not going to be great at it but that's exactly the same for if i put so you're an elite level cyclist you're fantastic at cycling but suddenly i tell you to run down the road you're probably going to pull a hamstring you're very, very adapted to what you do. And I'm a very, very big believer in that you should, uh, you should stay adapted according to that. I'm not necessarily going to give a powerlifter um, a, a ton of bicep work if it doesn't help them, for example. Again, you, know, you could argue, yes, it does help and it's great assistance work, um, but it's the same as I'm not going to give a swimmer i don't want a swimmer's shoulders to be massive it's just not efficient you know there's a really obvious one there if i give you bigger shoulders and you're a swimmer well then you're going to be less hydrodynamic you're not going to get through that water as efficiently you want some body fat as a swimmer because it helps you float so i also don't want you to be you know six percent body fat or something so although you stand you might stand in front of me as a swimmer let's stay on that you might stand in front of me as a swimmer and I look at you and be like, okay, yeah, we could just definitely do some stuff for your delts. We can get you stronger there. We can get you a little bit leaner. Actually, it's going to affect their performance and make them a worse competitor. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually a big believer in kind of almost to an extent not touching those things. Um, but then again, at the same time, we also do have to bear in mind that there are weaknesses that might need improving that, that will help you with your sport and, and overall as a human being. If you're a powerlifter and you also want to be able to run after your kids, then yeah, we need to bear that in mind at the same time. So your assistance stuff might become less about improving your lifts and a little bit more time devoted to um, doing some extra work that's going to assist you uh, running around after your kids, doing, uh, I don't know, a few a few extra conditioning complexes or, or something like that at the end as opposed to as opposed to some, I don't know, reverse hypers or something. You know, you, you've kind of got to decide what's, what's worth your time, really. What totally. you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck out of. Awesome. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we've been chatting for, you know, about an hour here. So can you give a quick summary of some of the core concepts, I guess, that, that we discussed, and then just maybe leave the listeners with, like, one sort of take-home piece? Yeah, I think if there's anything that people can take away from this, I think – it's that you must be able to justify. I know it sounds very, very simple, but every single exercise that you choose, that you select for yourself, if you're a coach, if you're selecting it for your client, you must be able to justify that exercise. If you're saying to yourself that I'm picking the exercise because it's hard, because it's a challenge, 
well then you probably need to read some textbooks you probably need to do a little bit more education as to why you might pick an exercise just because something's hard it doesn't mean it's going to get you know that person's going to get the most out of that exercise when we're talking about hypertrophy we're talking about putting as much force through those tissues as possible that will require one approach and a certain list of exercises if we're talking about improving strength that will transfer onto a sport well then we're talking about training in another way and maybe a different selection of exercises everyone's completely different but you must be able to justify that exercise based on on what you see in front of you you know you must train what's in front of you really and, and know your target and i think it probably leads us on to the point of what can people kind of take home really with them at the moment and i think it's what we were discussing with regards to to covid and actually using this period of time as an opportunity in their time off they've been learning some learning to basically get more out of less you know less weight less equipment options um you know less resistance they've got more out of those exercises so you know people have been using resistance bands and lighter weights and things like that and they've learned how to create tension they've learned how to make exercises more challenging and then actually they've learned how to fill that exercise where they sh should have felt that exercise before anyway because it's a little bit lighter they focused it on it a, a little bit more so when they do go back to the gym and in the uk as i said it's about a month month away um the other side of the pond it's kind of around the moment i think a lot of people are starting to come back but you need to now start using what you've learned in this period of time and apply it to your, your, your training now. And you'll get more longevity out of that training and you'll almost achieve kind of newbie level gains if you do start applying those things. So that's what I'll kind of leave people with really. It's, it all boils back down to just, just train a bit smarter and, and see this period of time as, as an opportunity to build in some, some solid foundations. So where can the listeners find you? Where are you most active? Uh, probably Instagram, Instagram at the Fitness Maverick or thefitnessmaverick.com. I try to put up uh, an article a week on my own website uh, or T Nation I'm writing for the most at the moment. Um, you'll usually find me in there um, once or twice a week. Uh, there are other places as well, but they're where you'll mostly find me. Awesome. So I'm going to be linking all of that stuff, website, social media um, in the show notes. So Gareth, man. Super, super interesting talk. Really great to have you on. I appreciate you jumping on and, uh, you know, sharing some knowledge with everyone. I've uh, definitely learned Thanks, a few things. So I hope everyone did as well. Good chatting. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.